we had, hadn't really talked about marriage at all. And then like grandma Jean sent us this thing. And then we were like, Oh my God, we have this diamond. We're going to lose it. We should put it on a ring. And then Josh's parents were like, well, we want to give you some of these stones. And we were like, Oh my God, we have so many stones. We should just put them all on a ring. And so we did. And then I was like, I guess we're engaged. <laughs> Welcome to the Egg Factory. I'm Diane Wu. And I'm Shara Tan. And we're very excited to introduce our show to you today. At the Egg Factory each week, we're going to be featuring an interview with one woman we find fascinating. Yes, we'll have improvisers, doctors, scientists, historians ex-flight attendants yes from like the 70s mothers sisters lovers friends (laughs) all of these women they're coming to be on our show yeah so and this is our first interview that we're doing and it's with jenna ton she's my sister she just got married to her boyfriend in 10 years and we're talking about that and her career in academia We're so glad to have you with us, and we hope that you enjoy learning what the name of our podcast is from, which you'll find out in this interview. This is the Egg Factory. (laughs) Plop! (laughs) Yes. So I recently got married. Like, whenever that was, like, three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Yeah. But you originally didn't want to get married. That is true. Why did you not want to get married? I, well, you know, like, I I feel like when I went to college and, like, took all my femme studies classes, marriage was, like, a patriarchal institution that has lots of problematic historical roots. And getting married seemed to be the opposite of a kind of liberating personal experience. So I think, so I think intellectually I was like, you cannot be a good feminist and get married, which isn't true. Like everyone can make their own decisions. So I think it just took me a really long time to figure out that you can still be a good feminist and get married. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is that I thought that it like totally didn't matter at all. Like, you know, Josh and I've been together for 10 years It seems to be working out fine. I don't even think we would be getting married except for Grandma Jean, our lovely grandma, sent us a ring and was like, you guys should get married. (laughs) (laughs) That's really what started your marriage plans? Yeah. No, she totally – because we hadn't really talked about marriage at all. And then, like, Grandma Jean sent us this thing and then we were like, oh, my God, we have this diamond. We're going to lose it. We should put it on a ring. And then Josh's parents were like, well, we want to give you some of these stones. And we were like, oh, my God, we have so many stones. We should just put them all on a ring. And so we did. And then I was like, I guess we're engaged. (laughs) And so then we got engaged. And then we were like, I guess that means we're going to get married. So it wasn't really like a sit down and talk about it. It was more of like a series of iterative steps towards getting married. Mm -hmm. But since we got engaged, it was like, first of all, our families love us more. (laughs) You also were way more touchy for whatever reason after you yes, got engaged. Yes, I think that we also were like, oh my gosh, maybe we are actually choosing to be together in the future as opposed to just like being together. Mm-hmm. So then I was like, wow, Josh is a catch. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
like his parents when we got engaged suddenly like welcomed me into the family in a new way mm-hmm. which I was surprised about and I think that our parents like, like really started to like Josh even more especially our dad yeah like really opened up to him in what way did the Mizells welcome you in a new way his mom said Jenna I love you and gave me a kiss Oh my and that gosh. had never happened yeah and then she started texting me and calling me to talk about things. Uh-huh. That never happened. And then it was just like their guards were let down mm-hmm. in a certain way. Maybe the similar thing happened between Josh and I. It was like, oh, I guess we are actually going to be together. So I guess maybe we should um, think about that a little bit more seriously. Yeah. So you didn't expect that as a result? No, I did not at all. We had to do like premarital talks with Rabbi Getzel. And he actually was really good at being like, well, you guys have to confront the fact that you haven't been serious, even though you think you've been serious for so long. So then we had to talk about what it means to be serious. And that was really helpful. What does it mean to be serious? I think it's like, you know, it's an intentional act. It's like I... I like in public would like everyone to know that I choose you to be my partner and I think that you're great Mm -hmm. and that's like kind of hard to do Mm -hmm. in a way but I mean it I don't know it felt at our wedding it felt good Mm -hmm. I guess like so how did you reconcile your your feminism and marriage yeah minds I mean, I think one of the things is just growing older. Like, you know, when you're in college and you're like 20 and 21, it's easy to be like super idealistic or super um, intense about what you think your future decisions are going to be. But I think part of it is just growing up and becoming a little bit more mellow (laughs) Mm -hmm. and thinking like, oh, just because you get married doesn't mean that like your career is over or like your intellectual position changes as someone who's married. So you sort of learn about that. Um, And I think also being on the job market, especially in the humanities. So people often say you shouldn't get married or if you do get married, you shouldn't wear a ring if you're going to go on inner job interviews because especially if you're a woman. Yeah. So they've done studies and they have, so men who go on and have interviews with search committees who wear a wedding ring are generally seen as being more responsible and more capable members of society. Cause it's like, wow, they have like a wife and probably kids who are going to take care of them. So they're going to be really good at being professors. Whereas women are seen as the opposite. They're seen as like, Oh, they're actually wives and mothers first and academics second. Um, and they're going to have to sacrifice a lot to be academics because of their natural role as wives and mothers. So people, people often say, don't bring your ring. Don't talk about being married. Don't talk about having kids. Try not to be pregnant when you go on the job market. That seemed pretty scary to me because, you know, I wouldn't want to sacrifice my future career just for wearing my wedding band. But on the other hand, like, how are things going to change if everyone pretends that they aren't married and, like, don't have other obligations in their life? And mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. But So have you decided if you're going to wear your wedding band for interviews? I will wear my wedding band. You like the simple wedding band with the little leaves. I do. I do. It's so cute. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm curious. I don't know if there's an answer to this, but do you, has becoming married made you see yourself differently? Like other people see you differently and you and Josh together differently, but do you feel a change in your identity? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I have to say I'm having a hard time adjusting to being married. <laughs> I told Josh the other day, I was like, that happened so fast. And he was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> we were together for 10 years. <laughs> but I am having a hard time calling him my husband. <laughs> uh, although he like super loves calling me his wife and Everywhere we go now, he's like, this is my wife, Jenna. <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> so there there must be some sort of issue going on in terms of um, trying to assimilate my married life into my identity because it's not going super smoothly. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's because of your fear that being seen as someone's wife kind of removes the rest of your identity or? Yeah, Totally. How are you supposed to approach that? How do other people approach that? I don't know. I have not talked to women about this before, about like if their identity changes when they get married. Uh I think some people really look forward to getting married and like can't wait to be a wife and have like a whole mindset about what it will be like for them to be a wife and a mother and these sorts of things. I think then maybe getting married is like, yeah. Like an affirmation of your identity. Yeah. Um, Can we have a little background on... And where you are now and how you got there? Yeah. Sure. Yes. I am a graduate student in the history of science department at Harvard, and I'm doing my PhD. I'm currently a seventh year graduate student, which means I've been around for a while. So right now I'm trying to finish writing my dissertation, which is about the history of biology. And I'm applying for a range of different kinds of jobs after I graduate. And everything is up in the air. So I applied for maybe like 40 jobs. Whoa. So the end goal is to become a professor and be given a tenure track job in a history department or history of science department. Um, There are very few of those and the competition is very fierce. And meanwhile, as you're graduating, you're also trying to finish writing your dissertation, which is really hard to do when all of your attention is on the job market because you would like to get a job when you're done. Hmm. So it's been a pretty stressful year. And what have you noticed about, I don't know, because I know that we've had a lot of conversations about like women in academia. Yeah, no, questions about gender and academia are really naughty and longstanding because universities as institutions have been around for so long that a lot of the kinds of practices around hiring and assumptions about who would be a good professor are um, maintained by older guard (laughs) <laughs> an older guard of um, white men, mostly. And like kind of your dissertation a little bit talks about the history of this. Yeah, yeah. So my dissertation more broadly is about the development of biology as an academic discipline in the United States between 1870 and 1935. So it was a time when biology was moving from a very varied natural history type of practice. So there were sort of professional and amateur naturalists of all stripes. Natural history was something that men and women did recreationally, but increasingly it became part of higher education and it turned into a kind of academic biology that had rigorous requirements. And this is how you become a biologist. You have to like, you know, go to graduate school and want to be a professor. And the construction of these kinds of regulations systematically excluded women 
who are very visible and very present during an earlier stage of natural history activities and then became marginalized as it became mainstream. So one of the things that my dissertation does is it traces what happens to these women. The, say there's this woman who I like, her name is Edith Mason Buckingham. She was from a wealthy Boston family. She was really into natural history. Like she thought it was super awesome. So she did her undergraduate degree at Radcliffe College. While she was at Radcliffe, she helped start and was the president of the science club. <laughs> oh my God. So she was really active in student groups. She graduated in 1902. She was like, I want to be a professor. And they were like, well, sorry, like women can't be professors. Like, good luck. So she became a high school teacher in natural history. And she was like, no, but I still want to be a professor. And they were like, well, you have to have lots of experience, like in the laboratory. And she was like, well, no one's going to let me join the laboratory. Like, what do I do? Like, laboratories are only for men. Harvard was starting this new biological research station in Bermuda. And her old advisor, Edward Lawrence Mark, she wrote a letter to him and was like, I heard about this are women allowed to come? Hmm. And he was like, um, yes, we want as many people as possible to come. So it'll be a great success. So she was part of the first delegation of naturalists to go to Bermuda and help found the inaugural year of the Bermuda Biological Station. And if you were a woman, you could like pretty easily get into zoological programs in Bermuda and then get fed back into the center. So that's what happened with Edith Nason Buckingham. She like went to Bermuda, learned a lot about natural history came back and so she was a special student in a male dominated laboratory. She wrote a great dissertation about ants. So Edith Nason Buckingham was the first woman to get her PhD from Radcliffe College in zoology in 1910. Radcliffe College gave women bachelor's degrees and master's degrees and then wanted to hold off initially of getting PhDs until 1910 because Harvard refused to confer PhDs on women and Radcliffe College also refused to confer PhDs on women because they were hoping to convince Harvard through spite and guilt that they should do it. But like that didn't happen until the 1970s. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> so Wait, Edith, women couldn't get PhDs at Harvard until the 1970s? Yeah. So they got separate, they got degrees from Radcliffe College oh, okay. that were co-signed by Harvard, but they were Radcliffe College degrees. Basically, the history of Harvard is a history of discriminating against women because they'll distract men from the manly enterprise of intellectual thought and activity. <laughs> Um, Which is what you've been up to the last seven years. <laughs> yeah. So that also is a complicating factor because yeah. then you're like, oh, I'm part of this machine that basically tries to erase people from the academic record. So part of my project is trying to bring women back into just the daily life of science at this time. So besides Edith Nason Buckingham, I talk about women who are specimen collectors, who are secretaries who have lots of power, who, um, you know, maybe didn't become professors, but also had a lot of knowledge about the natural world. How does like having this historical perspective on the history of biology like affect how you feel about like you said that it was like you're like what am I doing this cog in the wheel yeah 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 what am I just a minion um I find at least we all end up writing about things that we're actually wrestling with personally <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, especially a number of the female colleagues that I have. So, you know, my ambivalence towards what graduate training is like and the kind of demographics around sort of elite higher education comes out for sure. My choice of research topic and in my desire to find an alternate way of understanding how women exist in academia is most definitely driven by my own like ambivalence about being a woman in academia. I mean, I think there are like some takeaways that are really interesting that come from my project, 
One is that creating new interdisciplinary sites for doing science really energizes a field and it brings practitioners from places you wouldn't expect. And it kind of creates a new kind of scientific community that is linked to, but somewhat different from a kind of mainstream zoological laboratory in an institution. So if like I were the president of a university that had an issue with diversity, I would say, okay, like I know we're trying to have like diversity hires within the biology department, but what we need to do is we need to create this new interdisciplinary site or new interdisciplinary field, because then you don't have expectations about who fits into that particular kind of profile because the profile is being made as the people are being discovered to be part of this program. Um, and then I also think that enables people from different disciplinary fields to have to fight about who they think is a good scholar. And that's often really different depending on what field you're in. I think that comes from my project. So if like I were president, I would do that. Um, the other thing that I think is somewhat interesting is that women have always found ways to pursue their interest in science, even during time periods like the late 19th and early 20th century, when they were being excluded pretty brutally from mainstream conversations. So one way that women found um, not necessarily satisfaction, but like energy and interest in maintaining their connections to the scientific world was by marrying a scientist. <laughs> Yeah. So you marry a scientist and then you basically have a, you know, research partner for life. So a lot of the women who tried to get PhDs from Harvard and who were refused and who maybe even later went to Germany and got their own PhDs and weren't hired as professors because women still, even in women's colleges, weren't thought of as having the qualifications for that, married a scientist or married a doctor and basically became co-authors in their partner's papers and maintained a kind of active scientific career that way. So I have hope that, that women can make spaces for themselves in all sorts of underemployed locations in their lives. I guess Edith Nascent, is that her middle name? Nascent, yeah. Nascent Buckingham seems to be a woman you admire. Where could you learn more about her if you were just someone listening to this podcast? Oh, you could read my dissertation. <laughs> um, Actually, nothing has been written formally about her. You could probably look her up in historical newspapers in the 19th century. There's the Library of Congress Historical Newspaper Database. is a great database. You could probably find out about her in there. I will say, as a coda, she, like, I'm not sure what she did in the middle years of her life, but she got really into dog breeding. So if you look at Boston papers in the 1920s, there's, like, pictures of Edith Nason Buckingham with her giant dogs, who she always had, like, very funny names for. And she and her lady friend ended up buying an egg an egg factory, an egg farm, and became known as, like, like really making really good eggs. And so people in Boston would buy the eggs from Edith Nason and her lady friend. So she had a great life. You know? Lady friend? Was it her partner? I don't know. I mean, the problem with a lot of these women is that their correspondence doesn't necessarily exist anymore. So I'm not sure about what was in her heart, but I do know that she became a successful dog breeder. So <laughs> well, we could all be so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to The Egg Factory. Thanks so much to Jenna for being our very first guest, and special thanks also to Jamie Smith for helping us out with production this week. And if you want to learn more about Edith Nason Buckingham and see pictures of her with her giant dogs, check out our website, 
eggsforears.tumblr.com. That's with the number four. So leave us comments. Let us know what you think. We're super excited. Can't wait to get to know you all and all these women. Love.